Chapter Seven of the Mysteries of Paris, Volume Six by Eugène Sue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Marriage. From the moment in which she had learnt from Rodolph the violent death of Fleur de Marie, Sarah had felt crushed and borne down by a disclosure so fatal to all her ambitious hopes. Tortured equally by a too late repentance, she had fallen into a fearful nervous attack attended even by delirium. Her partially healed wound opened afresh, and a long continuation of fainting fits gave rise to the supposition of her death. Yet still the natural strength of her constitution sustained her even amid this severe shock, and life seemed to struggle vigorously against death. Seated in an easy chair, the better to relieve herself from the sense of suffocation which oppressed her, Sarah had remained for some time plunged in bitter reflections, almost amounting to regrets, that she had been permitted to escape from almost certain death. Suddenly the door of the invalid's chamber opened, and Thomas Satan entered, evidently struggling to restrain some powerful emotion. Hastily waving his hand for the countess's attendance to retire, he approached his sister, who seemed scarcely to perceive her brother's presence. "'How are you now?' inquired he. "'Much the same. I feel very weak and have at times a most painful sensation of being suffocated. Why was I not permitted to quit this world during my late attack?' "'Sarah,' replied Thomas Satan, after a momentary silence, "'you are hovering between life and death. "'Any violent emotion might destroy you "'or recall your feeble powers and restore you to health. "'There can be no further trial for me, brother. "'You know not that. "'I could now even hear that Rodolphe were dead without a shock. "'The pale spectre of my murdered child, "'murdered through my instrumentality, is ever before me. "'It creates not mere emotion.' but a bitter and ceaseless remorse. Oh, brother, I have known the feelings of a mother only since I have become childless. I own I liked better to find you in that cold, calculating ambition that made you regard your daughter but as a means of realizing the dream of your whole existence. That ambition fell to the ground, crushed forever beneath the overwhelming force of the prince's reproaches, and the picture drawn by him of the horrors to which my child had been exposed awakened in my breast all a mother's tenderness. And how, said Satan, hesitatingly and laying deep emphasis on each word he uttered, if by a miracle, a chance, an almost impossibility, your daughter were still living, tell me how you would support such a discovery. I should expire of shame and despair. No such thing. You would be but too delighted at the triumph such a circumstance would afford to your ambition, for had your daughter survived, the prince would, beyond a doubt, have married you. And admitting the miracle you speak of could happen, I should have no right to live. But so soon as the prince had bestowed on me the title of his consort, my duty would have been to deliver him from an unworthy spouse, and my daughter from an unnatural mother. The perplexity of Thomas Satan momentarily increased. Commissioned by Rodolphe, who was waiting in an adjoining room, to acquaint Sarah that Fleur de Marie still lived, he knew not how to proceed. So feeble was the state of the Countess's health, that an instant might extinguish the faint spark that still animated her frame, and he saw that any delay in performing the nuptial rite between herself and the prince might be fatal to every hope. Determined to legitimize the birth of Fleur de Marie by giving every necessary formality to the ceremony, the prince had brought with him a clergyman to perform the sacred service, and two witnesses in the persons of Murphy and Baron de Groen. The Duc de Lucenay and Lord Douglas, hastily summoned by Satan, 
had arrived to act as attesting witnesses on the part of the countess. Each moment became important, but the remorse of Sarah, mingled as it was with a maternal tenderness that had entirely replaced the fiery ambition that once held sway in her breast, rendered the task of Satan still more difficult. He could but hope that his sister deceived either herself or him, and that her pride and vanity would rekindle in all their former brightness at the prospect of the crown so long and ardently coveted. "'Sister,' resumed Satan in a grave and solemn voice, "'I am placed in a situation of cruel perplexity. "'I could utter one word of such deep importance "'that it might save your life "'or stretch you a corpse at my feet. "'I have already told you nothing in this world can move me more. "'Yes, one, one event, my sister. "'And what is that? "'Your daughter's welfare. "'I have no longer a child. "'She is dead. "'But if she were not—' "'Cease, brother, such useless suppositions. "'We exhausted that subject some minutes since. "'Leave me to unavailing regrets. "'Nay, but I cannot so easily persuade myself "'that if, by some almost incredible chance, "'some unhoped for aid, "'your daughter had been snatched from death and still lived. "'I beseech you, talk not thus to me. "'You know not what I suffer. "'Then listen to me, sister, while I declare that, as the Almighty shall judge you and pardon me, your daughter lives. Lives, said you. My child lives? I did, and truly so. The prince, with a clergyman and the necessary witnesses, awaits in the adjoining chamber. I have summoned two of our friends to act as our witnesses. The desire of your life is at length accomplished, the prediction fulfilled, and you are wedded to royalty." As Thomas Satan slowly uttered the concluding part of his speech, he observed, with indescribable uneasiness, the want of all expression in his sister's countenance. The marble features remained calm and imperturbable, and her only sign of attending to her brother's words was a sudden pressure of both hands to her heart, as if to still its throbbing, or as though under the influence of some acute pain, while a stifled cry escaping her trembling lips as she fell back in her chair. But the feeling whatever it was, soon passed away, and Sarah became fixed, rigid, and tranquil, as before. "'Sister,' cried Satan, "'what ails you? Shall I call for assistance?' "'Tis nothing, merely the result of surprise and joy at the unhoped-for tidings you have communicated to me. At last, then, the dearest wish of my heart is accomplished.' "'I was not mistaken,' thought Satan. "'Ambition still reigns paramount in her heart.' and will carry her in safety through this trial. Well, sister, said he aloud, what did I tell you? You were right, replied she with a bitter smile as she penetrated the workings of her brother's thoughts. Ambition has again stifled the voice of maternal tenderness within me. You will live long and happily to cherish and delight in your daughter. Doubtless I shall, brother. See how calm I am. Ah, but is your tranquillity real or assumed? Feeble and exhausted, can you imagine it possible for me to feign? You can now understand the difficulty I felt in breaking this news to you. Nay, I marvel at it, knowing as you did the extent of my ambition. Where is the prince? He is here. I would fain see and speak with him before the ceremony. Then, with affected indifference, she added, And my daughter is also here, as a matter of course. She is not here at present. You will see her by and by. True, there is no hurry, but send for the prince, I entreat of you. 
Sister, I know not why, but your manner alarms me, and there is a strangeness in your very looks as well as words. And Satan spoke truly. The very absence of all emotion in Sarah inspired him with a vague and indefinable uneasiness. He even fancied he saw her eyes filled with tears she hastily repressed. But unable to account for his own suspicions, he at once quitted the chamber. "'Now, then,' said Sarah, "'if I may but see and embrace my daughter, I shall be satisfied. I fear there will be some considerable difficulty in obtaining that happiness. Rodolph will refuse me as a punishment for the past, but I must and will accomplish my longing desire. Oh, yes, I cannot, will not be denied. But the prince comes.' Rodolph entered and carefully closed the door after him. Addressing Sarah in a cold, constrained manner, he said, "'I presume your brother has told you all?' "'He has.' "'And your ambition is satisfied?' "'Quite, quite satisfied.' "'Every needful preparation for our marriage has been made. The minister and attesting witnesses are in the next room.' "'I know it.' "'They may enter, may they not, madame?' "'One word, my lord. I wish to see my daughter.' "'That is impossible.' I repeat, my lord, that I earnestly desire to see my child. She is but just recovering from a severe illness, and she has undergone one violent shock today. The interview you ask might be fatal to her. Nay, my lord, she may be permitted to embrace her mother without danger to herself. Why should she run the risk? You are now a sovereign princess. Not yet, my lord, nor do I intend to be until I have embraced my daughter. Rodolphe gazed on the countess with unfeigned astonishment. "'Is it possible,' cried he, "'that you can bring yourself to defer the gratification of your pride and ambition?' "'Till I have indulged the greater gratification of a mother's feelings. Does that surprise you, my lord?' "'It does, indeed. And shall I see my daughter?' "'I repeat. Have a care, my lord. The moments are precious. Mine are possibly numbered.' As my brother said, the present trial may kill or cure me. I am now struggling, with all my power, with all the energy I possess, against the exhaustion occasioned by the discovery just made to me. I demand to see my daughter, or otherwise I refuse the hand you offer me, and, if I die before the performance of the marriage ceremony, her birth can never be legitimized. But Fleur de Marie is not here. I must send for her. Then do so instantly and I consent to everything you may propose. And, as I repeat, my minutes are probably numbered, the marriage can take place while they are conducting my child hither. Although tis a matter of surprise to hear such sentiments from you, yet they are too praiseworthy to be treated with indifference. You shall see, Fleur de Marie. I will write to her to come directly. Right there, on that desk, where I received my death-blow. While Rodolphe hastily penned a few lines, the countess wiped from her brows the cold damps that had gathered there, while her hitherto calm and unmovable features were contracted by a sudden spasmodic agony, which had increased in violence from having been so long concealed. The letter finished, Rodolphe arose and said to the countess, "'I will dispatch this letter by one of my aides-de-camp. She will be here in half an hour from the time my messenger departs.' Shall I, upon my return to you, bring the clergyman and persons chosen to witness our marriage, that we may at once proceed? You may, but no, let me beg of you to ring the bell. Do not leave me by myself. 
Let Sir Walter dispatch the letter and then return with the clergyman. Rodolph rang. One of Sarah's attendants answered the summons. Request my brother to send Sir Walter Murphy here, said the countess in a faint voice. The woman went to perform her mistress's bidding. This marriage is a melancholy affair, Rodolph, said the countess bitterly. I mean, as far as I am concerned. To you it will be productive of happiness. The prince started at the idea. Nay, be not astonished at my prophesying happiness to you from such a union, but I shall not live to mar your joys. At this moment, Murphy entered. My good friend, said the prince, send this letter off to my daughter. Colonel Blank will be the bearer of it, and he can bring her back in my carriage. Then desire the minister and all concerned in witnessing the marriage ceremony to assemble in the adjoining room. God of mercy, cried Sarah, fervently clasping her hands as the squire disappeared, grant me strength to fold my child to my heart. Let me not die ere she arrives. Alas! Why were you not always the tender mother you now are? Thanks to you, at least, for awakening in me a sincere repentance for the past, and a hearty desire to devote myself to the good of those whose happiness I have so fearfully disturbed. Yes, when my brother told me, a short time since, of our child's preservation. Let me say our child. It will not be for long I shall require your indulgence. I felt all the agony of knowing myself irrecoverably ill yet overjoyed to think that the birth of our child would be legitimized. That done, I shall die happy. Do not talk thus. You will see I shall not deceive you again. My death is certain. And you will die without one particle of that insatiate ambition which has been your return? By what fatality has your repentance been delayed till now? Though tardy it is sincere, and I call heaven to witness that at this awful moment, I bless God for removing me from this world, and that I am spared the additional misery of living, as I am aware I should have been a weight and burden to you, as well as a bar to your happiness elsewhere. But can you pardon me? For mercy's sake, say you do. Do not delay to speak forgiveness and peace to my troubled spirit until the arrival of my child, for in her presence you would not choose to pronounce the pardon of her guilty mother. It would be to tell her a tale I would fain she never knew. You will not refuse me the hope that, when I am gone, my memory may be dear to her. Tranquilize yourself. She shall know nothing of the past. Rodolphe, do you too say I am forgiven? Oh, forgive me, forgive me. Can you not pity a creature brought low as I am? Alas, my sufferings might well move your heart to pity and to pardon. I do forgive you from my innermost soul said the prince, deeply affected. The scene was most heart-rending. Rodolphe opened the folding doors and beckoned in the clergyman with the company assembled there, that is to say Murphy and Baron de Groen as witnesses on the part of Rodolphe, and the Duc de Lucenay and Lord Douglas on the part of the Countess. Thomas Satan followed close behind. All were impressed with the awful solemnity of the melancholy transaction, and even Monsieur de Lucenay seemed to have lost his usual petulance and folly. The contract of marriage between the most high and powerful prince Gustave Rodolph, fifth reigning duke of Gerolstein, and Sarah Peyton of Halsburg, Countess MacGregor, which legitimized the birth of Fleur de Marie, had been previously drawn up by Baron de Groen, and being read by him, was signed by the parties mentioned therein, as well as duly attested by the signature of their witnesses. 
spite of the countess's repentance when the clergyman in a deep solemn voice inquired of rodolph whether his royal highness was willing to take sarah satan of halsburg countess macgregor for his wife and the prince had replied in a firm distinct voice i will the dying eyes of sarah shone with unearthly brilliancy an expression of haughty triumph passed over her livid features the last flash of expiring ambition not a word was spoken by any of the spectators of this mournful ceremony at the conclusion of which the four witnesses bowing with deep but silent respect to the prince quitted the room brother said sarah in a low voice request the clergyman to accompany you to the adjoining room and to have the goodness to wait there a moment how are you now my dear sister asked satan you look very pale nay replied she with a haggard smile fear not for me am i not grand duchess of gerolstein left alone with rodolph sarah murmured in a feeble and expiring voice while her features underwent a frightful change i am dying my powers are exhausted i shall not live to kiss and bless my child yes yes you will calm yourself she will soon be here it will not be in vain i struggle against the approach of death i feel too surely his icy hand upon me my sight grows dim i can scarcely discern even you sarah cried the prince chafing her damp cold hands with his take courage she will soon be here she cannot delay much longer the almighty has not deemed me worthy of so great a consolation as the presence of my child hark sarah methinks i hear the sound of wheels yes tis she your daughter comes promise me rodolph she shall never know the unnatural conduct of her wretched but repentant mother murmured the countess in almost inarticulate accents the sound of her carriage rolling over the paved court was distinctly heard but the countess had already ceased to recognize what was passing around her her words became more indistinct and incoherent rodolph bent over her with anxious looks he saw the rising films of death veil those beautiful eyes and the exquisite features grow sharp and rigid beneath the touch of the king of terrors forgive me my child let me see my child pardon at least and after death the honours due to my rank she faintly said and these were the last articulate words she uttered the one fixed dominant passion of her life mingled even in her last moments with the sincere repentance she expressed and doubtless felt just at that awful moment murphy entered my lord cried he the princess marie is arrived let her not enter this sad apartment desire satan to bring the clergyman hither then pointing to sarah who was slowly sinking into her last moments rodolph added heaven has refused her the gratification of seeing her child shortly after that the countess sarah macgregor breathed her last End of chapter seven read by celine major